We are at the end of the uh, book of Ephesians. It's been a series we've been doing for this term, uh, something that uh, I hope you've enjoyed and really challenged by. I know I've been challenged by particularly digging deep. There's so much in it. You read it once, you read it twice, you read it three times. You're always picking up new stuff and being challenged and amazed of God's love for us. So we come to the end and it's kind of pulling all Paul's uh, thoughts together, his teaching together. It's kind of like his final word to, to his letter to the churches to say, let me encourage you, let me encourage you, let me encourage you. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Let me pray and then we'll, uh, yeah, we need God's help to help us understand this passage. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that you, we have it in front of us in scripture. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it and digest it and be shaped by it. We thank you that you've given us all we need to know you and draw near to you. And we pray this morning as we reflect on these words that we'll uh, be better equipped to live for you, to stand firm and make it to the end. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting things that come out of the same-sex marriage debate uh, was the us and them kind of language. So without going into the debate, uh, the people in the gay lobby would say, you know, those people, they're against us. And would often name, they're the church. The church is against us. They don't want us to have fun. They don't want us to have love. They, they, they're just against us. But on the, same, on the other side... You have representatives of the church using the same sort of language. It's the gay lobby. They're the ones that are against us. They're the ones that are trying to uh, stop us from expressing our religious freedom, that we don't have our uh, freedom to think the way we do. They're against us. And there's this enemy kind of language going on, this us and them. And it raises the question of who is on our side and who is the enemy. Who is the enemy? Is it the gay lobby who's trying to put safe schools programs into the schools just to teach that, well, if there is no God, you can live however you want, you know, sexually, uh, do whatever you want, experiment, that's fine. Is it the state Labor Party who's uh, questioning, they've got on the table uh, laws about stopping uh, churches doing RI, religious instruction, in schools that they're considering? Is it the Greens Party who's trying to, uh, they're trying to put in place uh, laws that will change the status of churches from being charitable organisations so they can tax more? So what you're giving will be government will they get their cut so we can't use it in our community. Are they the enemy? Are they the enemy? That certainly seems like. It seems like the world's against the church at times, that they're trying to stop the church. Well, for some of us, is it a bit closer to home? In the workplace, we have friends or bosses that say, you know, no religion around here. Don't talk to us about your faith or Christianity. It will not be tolerated. That they're your enemy. Or is it family or friends that just they don't understand why you follow Jesus. So they're always taking opportunities to discourage you or to question you or just saying, just give up. Is it worth it? Or could it even be people in churches that are always negative, always critical, and never seeing the good things, they're always speaking up? Are they the enemy? Are they stopping us from seeing the good things that are happening? Could they be the enemy around us? It's very easy to make it personal. By personal, I mean that uh, they're always speaking against me, they're always trying to stop me, whether it's expressing my faith in the workplace or government or, or here. It's like, it's us and them. They're the enemy. But what Paul's saying in this last part of his letter, if that's what you're thinking, you've got it all wrong. It's not like that at all. In fact, there's something much bigger going on. 
See, often we uh, just take in what we can see around us. What we see is people against us, so they're the enemy. But Paul's going, no, no, there's a much bigger picture. Take a step back and you'll see who's the enemy. He says there's another realm, uh, another world, if you like, going on where Satan is certainly at work. Satan is certainly in control, trying to inhibit the work of Jesus and the gospel. When we see that, as soon as we get into it, and Paul's trying to say, for those with a small view of Satan, you've got to know he's real, is what he's saying. He starts off, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it's probably worth us just taking a few moments to consider what is he talking about, this heavenly realms? What is going on that he's referring to that we can see what's around us, but he's sort of talking about stuff that you can't see of what's going on around us. Uh, so it's worth just taking a minute because it's, Paul's actually been talking about these heavenly realms all through the letter of Ephesians. So we sort of haven't mentioned it until we've got to this point where he's really hitting it. But just to give you a quick flyover, what is going on in the heavenly realms? He first talks about uh, in 120, uh, talking about the Father and the Father's love, how the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is evoked, uh, invoked not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. There's two things going on here, that God the Father has the power even in the heavenly realms, and it answers the question, where is Jesus now? Because Jesus was once here on earth, once dead in a tomb, then was raised from the dead, people saw him alive, then ascended into heaven, and Jesus is now in this heavenly realm, seated by the Father. That's where Jesus is now. But it's saying much more than that, because it's also saying Jesus is seated high, far above all rulers and authorities. It's, there's other things going on in these heavenly realms, but Jesus sits above them, meaning sits in supremacy of all them. He's over the top of them. He's the ultimate ruler, the ultimate authority in the heavenly realms. So we need to know Jesus, even though he once was dead, is now seated in the highest of high seats in the heavenly realms. But he also goes on to say uh, in chapter 1 verse 3 when he's introducing this idea of who we are in Christ. He says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So for some reason here it feels like once we become a Christian we sometimes feel a change, sometimes we don't feel a change. What is that really like? Paul's saying, no, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you have everything you ever needed in the heavenly realms. Like, you're equipped. You're equipped to be here. Don't be afraid. You've got everything you need in the heavenly realms through his blessing. He goes on to say then in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's two things going on here too. We talked about Jesus sitting high in the heavenly realms. We have a seat with him in the heavenly realms. Now I know it 
doesn't feel like it. We're sitting here, earth's always a struggle, living in flesh and blood. But he says, you've got this seat and you've got it now. One day Jesus is going to come and take us home, whether we're alive or whether he comes in our lifetime. He's going to come to seat us, sit us on those seats. But we have the seat now. We have an entitlement. We have a right. We have an inheritance, is what he talked about in chapter 1. To be there. It's, it's sitting in the heavenly realms beside Jesus in the highest of high seats. But he also says in verse 7, he's put us there for one of the reasons is that everybody might see. That everybody might see, uh, everybody in the heavenly realms even, all creatures great and small, those powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, Satan himself is going to see, what are they doing up there seated beside Jesus? I knew them when they were on earth. I knew what they were like. They were selfish, self-centered sinners. How can they have a seat in the heavenly realms legitimately? How can they do that? They're saying, God's kind of saying, I want people to say, I want you to be on display that this is a testimony to God's great love and his great measure of grace poured out upon us. That even though we don't deserve it, that God would send his son Jesus from the heavenly realms to come down to us, to walk this earth, to come down to us to die the death of sinners and criminals, that the world rejected him, the world hated him, and the world killed him, but in doing so, he's dying the death that we all deserve because of our rebellion, our wrath, our hate. But through his love, his grace, that Jesus would do that for us, he transforms us to having that seat. We're a new creation, not just here on earth, but for eternity in the heavenly realms. And he says when people see you, or when uh, all creatures, the powers and authorities, spiritual beings, see you seated with him, they're going to go, I know you didn't deserve it. That Ross guy is a rotten scoundrel. Don't trust him. He doesn't deserve to be there. But because of Jesus' great love and mercy on me, because his grace poured out to me, it's not how good is Ross, maybe even how lucky is Ross, but how good is God? How good is God? His great love and mercy, his grace poured out that would take somebody like that, lift them high into the heavenly realms. So we are a part of this. We are a part of this bigger picture. Paul says, take a step back, have a look at what's going on. There is this earth, but there is this other place. It's not another planet or another... Yeah, up on a cloud somewhere, but it's like another place where this heavenly realm is and Jesus reigns and we're entitled to be there with him and he will take us there one day. But he's, we're also demonstrating his great love. It's a testimony to God's great love. So then we come back to what Paul's saying here, particularly verse 12, when he's talking about our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against them. They're not the enemy. You know, those people. It's not the government making it hard for us. Governments can change rules. Governments can even ban Christianity. You're not allowed to have Bibles. You're not allowed to have talk. Does that gonna, is that going to kill the church? In fact, when countries have done that, the church has existed and even grown. Jesus is in control. Jesus is not scared of that. What about when our Friends and family or workmate discourage us? They, they push us down and tell us you know, that we're wasting our time. God's saying, no, they're not the enemy. There's a greater one in control. There's Satan. 
the one that reigns in the dark world, he's pushing you. It's not them. There's Satan. He's going to do everything he can so you won't be seated with him in the heavenly realms. He's going to do everything he can so you're not hearing the message. He's going to do everything he can so you're not growing in him, growing into maturity. So he's going to be trying to stop us. He even asks questions of our circumstances. Uh, you know, why do you follow God? Why? We had that great testimony, um, Wayne and Charlie, a couple of weeks ago. And I love the bit where Wayne said about how uh, in, there's times where it's almost like Satan is in your ear, going, can you really trust this God? Can you really trust this God of love that's meant to be looking after you when you see your daughter in not a good state? Satan's always asking those questions, challenging you, pushing you. It's like, is he real? But to always come back, to go, yeah, I can trust this God. I tr can trust him. There's, who is them the enemy? It's Satan. Paul wants us to know. He's writing this letter. Be aware, Satan is active. Satan is alive. Satan is going to try and erode your faith, no matter what, uh, no matter what circumstances. And it's kind of when we ignore Satan, when we think he's not there or don't believe in Satan, that's when he's winning the battle. That's when he has opportunities to ask those questions or push back on your faith. So we need to understand he is there. He is real. But then Paul goes on to share some stuff that says, look, if Satan's there and he is real and he's in the heavenly realms, he's stopping you in your faith or trying to, but it's all right, don't be afraid. Because he goes on to say... Uh, therefore, and he's talking about standing firm in our faith. <clears throat> he says, for those with a large view of Satan, he's not to be feared. There's this balance. One, we've got to remember he's there. Secondly, don't get too overwhelmed by this. He says in verse 13, therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand We'll just talk about that verse for a second because there's a couple of things going on here that he's saying, stand firm. There's lots of, if you, I encourage you, if you've been on this journey through Ephesians particularly, to actually go home sometime this week to actually read the whole letter and pick up. There's a lot of standing and walking language. Walk in maturity, walk to grow, walk in godliness. But now he's saying, stand, don't let Satan take you back off that. Don't let him destroy you. But he's also referred to this day... Um, this day of evil when it comes. And some people uh, can picture this Armageddon day. There's going to be this big battle going on. You know, is it in the heavenly realms with Jesus and the angels versus Satan and the demons? And that's all happening. It's not the battle that Paul's talking about, if he is thinking that at all. But it's this battle where the day comes. It's not like one day at the end of time, your faith will be challenged. But in fact, reading it in the context of the letter, it's every day your faith is going to be challenged. Be prepared. Get ready to stand firm. Be prepared. Tomorrow, your faith could be challenged in a serious way. Whether people are pushing back on you, whether circumstances, Satan's getting in your ear. But if it doesn't happen tomorrow, be prepared for the next day. And the next day, it will happen. Satan is always going to be pushing back on you. So we need to know, we always need to be prepared to stand firm. How do we stand firm? Verse 14, he goes on to describe... Uh, remember, this is uh, first century Roman Empire, and you've got to think, you know, the Roman soldiers were all kitted out, they all had all the gear, but they were decked out by the Roman army. 
You know, when you sign up, the Roman army gives you your shields, your breastplates, all your gear. So you're in uniform. But what he's saying here is not just put on a uniform, but put on the uniform that Jesus gives you. And this is what it looks like. Uh, Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, did you notice there, we can't just try harder. We can't just do this ourselves. So, for example, the belt of truth. The truth he's been talking about in Ephesians is the message of Jesus. It says, you come to know him through the truth the truth of the gospel so it's to know jesus and we we know jesus and we believe his truth he really did come to live this earth he really was god he really did die really rose again and he really took my sins and he really reigned supreme like that's the truth and if we hold on to that he says put it around your waist never let it go hang on to that truth it's not something we can make up it's the truth that he has given to us he's lived it out But he also says the breastplate of righteousness in our place. I can try and be more righteous, be a better person, but it's never going to work. It's never going to be strong enough. But the righteousness of Jesus, when he come and lived this earth, when he lived a life perfect, when he honoured God in ways that I could never do because of my weaknesses, he says, here, take my righteousness. Put that breastplate on. So I can wear Jesus' righteousness. I'm seen as righteous by God the Father because it's Jesus' righteousness I'm putting on. Verse 15, Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? And there he's talking about, if you uh, remember earlier on in Ephesians, he's talking about the amazing miracle of God bringing all people together, all believers together, and all believers are united with him. We're one with God. So this life of hostility of us and God, I don't like living God's way, I want to live my way. There's this barrier between me and God. There's this message of peace through Jesus that says, no, trust in Jesus and now you're one with God. You have true life with God through what Jesus has done. That's the message of peace that he's given us. Again, we can't make that up. That's what Jesus has done for us, given us. That's a message we've got. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Uh, Again, Paul mentions faith, talks about faith earlier in Ephesians. And he talks about faith being something that is a gift from God. God gives us the ability to trust in him. That's what faith is, to trust in him. And it's from God. We can't just try harder, work at it. You know, if I think long enough or meditate... It's actually God's the one that says, no, here's what you need to answer all your questions. Here's what you need uh, to have a heart that really trusts in me. So again, it's this having a shield of faith. It's a shield given to us from God himself that that we can trust in him. And it's interesting to know, this is the one that mentions Satan's attacks. When Satan attacks you with his fiery arrows, what's our first shield of defense? Faith. Am I going to trust God in this or am I going to believe the devil? You know, it's a shield of faith. That's the one we put up to stop Satan's attacks. Um, and one more, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you've got the, the helmet of salvation. Again, I can't save myself. Jesus has saved me and I can put on his helmet because 
I can't do anything for myself to save myself. But Jesus has saved me. I can put that on. Remember, you're saved through Jesus. The sword of the Spirit, which he gives to us, which is the word of God. Interesting, all the rest are defensive. This is the one for attacking. It's like we've got the word of God in Scripture. It talks about uh, in, in Ephesians 1, one of the, the spiritual blessings that we have is God gives us his Spirit. God's saying, look, I've given you my spirit to bring that oneness, that unity between me and you. I'm speaking to you. I'm with you through the word, through, through the Bible. You have that. So that's a sword of the spirit. If you don't have the spirit, if you don't have God, reading the Bible is really hard to understand. But when God's spirit gets involved, all of a sudden, it's a weapon. It cuts us to the heart. It can cut other things. It can cut Satan because it's the word of God speaking that's what he does. So he's saying, uh, through all this, stand firm. Because Jesus has given you everything. You believe in Jesus. So you've got everything you need to stand firm in your walk with God. So you can stand firm. In effect, how this looks, I think, is kind of cool. Because he starts off the book by saying, you know, like in verse 3, right at the start, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You've got it all. Then sort of fleshes out what it means. And then right in these last verses, he fleshes out what that might look like. So even as we describe what are those spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm, uh, we've got, the, breath, we've got uh, tr- the truth of Jesus being the one who saved us. We have his righteousness. That's what this, we are blessed with, his righteousness. We didn't deserve it, he gave us. Uh, the gospel of peace, that message of Jesus coming into the world to make us one with God without hostility. Uh, the shield of faith, he gives us that faith. We can distinguish all the flames from that faith. But also the helmet of salvation, the salvation he's blessed us with, did nothing to deserve it, but he's given us out of his grace and he's given us his spirit and the word so he can talk to us and be with us and speak into our lives. It's kind of these bookends. You've got it all. It fleshes out some detail and reminds us to the end. You've got it all again. This is what it looks like. But out of all this, in the middle then, he shows us what that looks like. Because we've got to be ready for battle. We've got to be equipped. We've got to be ready to fight so we can stand firm. But all through this, uh, Paul's been telling us things about what the battlefield looks like. Uh, He's talked about things, um, big things and little things, that Satan will attack you uh, through things like, uh, he talked about in chapter 2, about we will follow the ways of the, um, the spirit of the air, like talking about Satan, his evil ways that are against God. It's like we were born in a state that we don't naturally want to love God, but then Satan's in control of that right from a young age to put us in a situation where we're in a dark space. So he says, you're in that dark space. But he also says, uh, Satan's going to attack you in the little things as well. There's big things, life picture. I need to trust in Jesus and not follow Satan's ways. But in the little things, he says, don't get angry. Don't let, uh, don't go, let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold, he says. It's like even little things, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, all that's okay. But he says, no, even in those little things in life, when you get angry, you're giving the Satan an opportunity then to get his hands in and to pull your faith open, to expose you, to attack you. 
So even in the little things, he's going to be trying to, uh, to, to attack us. Paul goes on to mention some specific things in here. And if you've been on the journey, this will be no surprise. But he talks a lot about uh, a few particular things. One is sex. And that's where Satan can whisper in our ears, speak into our lives through the movies we watch, through the media we listen to, through the people we work with. Going sex outside of marriage, it's fun, it's good, it's it's exciting. That's where the action is. That's Satan going, do you really trust in God's plan for marriage? Or are you going to go this way? Paul says, no. Trusting God, actually living that way is what he calls idolatry. It means you're not following God, you're following another idol, and that idol is yourself. My wants, my needs, my desires. So even something like that. He talks about stuff like greed. Don't be greedy. Nails it a few times. We go, greed is good. We live in a culture of prosperity. Why wouldn't you want everything all for me? Satan's going, yeah, no, follow that. Make that your God. Make that your life ambition. Set you up here on life on earth. But yet Jesus is saying, you know what? If I'm God and your money's not God, why don't you give it all away? Satan's going, no, don't do that. It's very specific. Are you going to live God's way or or is Satan getting in your ear? Because Satan makes these promises look very attractive. Chase money. I'll give you everything you ever want. Looking for lust and pleasure and life satisfaction in sex, I'll fulfill it for you. And they're lies. They're lies. In fact, it says if you follow those lies, it leads to death because you're following Satan's ways. So don't do that. Don't follow his ways. And the other battlefield we talked about just last week is about at home, in the routine, in the mundane. It's like you get home and everybody, your husband, wife's all tired uh, and we just want to sit on the couch, we don't want to do anything, we don't want to serve each other because we've been serving other people all day, whether it's kids or bosses or whatever. But yet he says, no, if you're going to be like Christ, husband and wife submit to each other. Husbands, are you laying your life down for your wife as Christ laid his life down for the church? It's like he's not saying that just because this is the good Christian life. He's saying, this is a battlefield. Satan is going to attack you at home when you're tired and cranky and selfish and you don't want to serve your spouse. He's going, no, don't give Satan a foothold. This is how you live your life. He goes on to talk about our fathers in particular, uh, leading your children to know the ways of the Lord, bring them up in the faith. And it's like, that can be so. It's the routine, it's the mundane, it's the everyday, always sitting down with your children talking about God. And you go, why is it so hard? Why aren't they kind of more like me that they're growing in their faith? Why is raising children in the faith so hard? Until we realised we were born selfish, self-centred sinners and it was only a work of God that worked in our heart that gave us true life and my wife's a selfish, self-centred sinner. It's only the work of God that gives her life and wouldn't you know we make little kids who are selfish, self-centred sinners who need God to get their life changed. It's the mundane, it's the routine, it's the hard work, but it's the battlefield. This is where Satan's asking lots of questions of you. Are you going to stand firm in that? Or are you just going, it's too hard? It's too hard and give up. So it sounds very mundane to say, here's here's your armour given to you by Jesus. Read your Bible more. Draw near to God. Have stronger faith. Trust him. Uh, believe in righteousness uh, that he's given you and to be saved. Believe those things. But 
He's saying, if you don't do those things, if you put down your shield, Satan will be in there. It sounds to me, the very mundane, doesn't sound that exciting, but it's getting through each day, the day when Satan's going to become, to challenge you. A few times our family has climbed Mount Warning and we've done it when our kids are different ages. And I remember the last time my son Joel and I climbed Mount Warning. And if you've been there, the, the walk itself's not that long. It's only like a couple of k's up, a couple of k's down. But it really is up. And you're going up and up and up. And you can't see the top because you're in the bush and because of the angle of the mountain, you just you think, oh, surely I'm nearly there. Surely I'm nearly And, you know... For me, after 500 metres, my face is red, I'm dripping in sweat and I'm panting. It's like, surely we're nearly there. And by the time you look for shortcuts, it's just mundane, one foot after the other. Make it one foot after the other, going up and up and up. And it's not till you hit near the top, you know, the view starts to get a bit better and you see the, the railing with the rock that you've got to climb up the rock to get to the very top. That's when I'm nearly there. And on the way down... Um, we wanted to give people some encouragement. So last time we went up, Joel and I did a, a sunrise walk. So we went up in the dark, and as we were coming down in the sunlight, there were lots of people starting to walk up. And as they were nearly to the top, and you'd see them, red face, dripping in sweat, panting, and you'd encourage them and go, you're nearly there, keep going. You know, I know this is mundane, one foot after the other. There's no shortcuts. You can make it. And, oh, thanks, yeah, I needed that because I was about to give up and get them to the top. But my son thought it'd be a great joke that when you're halfway down or even lower than halfway down and you see people, red face, panting, sweat dripping off, to go, you're nearly there, good on you, keep going. And they're, oh, thanks, thanks, oh, that's good to know, we'll keep going, striving up. And it's like offering them false hope. It's kind of funny at the same time. But it's that kind of thing where there's no shortcuts, there's no easy path, it's still a hard walk. You've got to do it. The mandates, one foot after the other. It's climbing up those steps, more steps and more steps. This is what life is like. There's no easy path. There's no shortcuts. Even when you think you might have been nearly there, you've made it. No, you've got a long way to go still. Jesus is not here yet. That's what it's like. Keep going. Keep going. But you're not alone. Because Paul sort of pulls this together by saying, and this sort of, I think, kind of um, adds to the armour. He says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, always keeping on praying for all the saints. Now, he's not only just saying prayer's a good thing to do, but you kind of got to get what he's exaggerating, like he's really emphasising. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers, and there's all kinds of requests added in there, but it's sort of shortened. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's like, man, if you don't make a prayer of this, we're in trouble. Prayer is so important. Jesus is with us. It's not like Jesus is up in the distance in the heavenly realms and we're down here trying to do our best. He wants to help. He has the ability to help. But we need to reach out to him. We need to pray to him. Always, on all occasions, good and bad, all kinds of prayers, when work, when things are intense, whether it's a short one-sentence prayer or when, you, when, you, when you're home and got a little bit more time. For all people in all situations, it's like go through the photo directory, pray for people, people even you don't know, people in our church, because we're all in this battlefield together. We're all going through different struggles. 
Pray for all people. Use this prayer. And he gives us an example of what this prayer is like. Because he says in verse 19, Pray also for me that whenever I speak words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So he's going out on mission. For which I am an ambassador in chains. So at the moment he's in chains. That's a problem when you want to go out on mission. But pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. It's like I might have the ambition to go and tell more people about Jesus... But unless you guys are praying for me, unless there's prayer involved, we're wasting our time. It says, pray for all things at all times. Even for me, I'm in jail, I want to get the word out. But if it's not prayer, if God's not a part of it, I'm happier in jail, might as well say. So it's a challenge for us. For us in our walks, do we make prayer a priority? Do we've got God beside us wanting to help? Do we take advantage of that and we actually talk to him in prayer? But also for others too. Because we don't want to be a church where we just, you know, it's all about me and my want and my cat and my sore foot or whatever. But it's, we want to be a, a praying church. Now if you have trouble doing that in your own time, uh, we make prayer a priority in our growth groups. There's a prayer group that meets here, 8 o'clock before the service. Get along to that so we can be praying together as a church. It's a great opportunity. But make time in your day to do those prayers. Because this is all in the context of standing firm. He says, I want to see you make it to the end. I don't want to see you stumble. I don't want to see you take it, be taken. It brings up images for me of what it's going to be like on that last day when Jesus does come to bring us home. The gates of heaven are open and we're there entering into heaven. Finally, we've rid this, this body, this sinfulness, and we're brought into his kingdom as far as his heavenly realm goes. So I'm looking forward to the day of being there uh, with my family. I'm looking forward to the day of being there with all you guys being there, with all your children being there. I'm also looking forward to the day that as we're there, sort of, hey, this is a Southside crew coming into the gates of heaven, that there'll be more people that I haven't met yet. Because we have this 1% mission that there's over 100,000 people around this church within 10 minutes' drive. That's not very far. And we're praying and working towards... Um, that God would use us to reach 1%, 1,000 people. When we get there, we'll reevaluate and make it bigger, hopefully. But like, that's 1,000 people we don't know yet. They're not sitting here yet. But wouldn't it be awesome to be there, walking into the gates of heaven together because of what Jesus has done for us? A great day of celebration. But what Paul's saying is, don't fall. Satan's going to do all he can so you don't hear the message. He's going to do all he can so you don't grow in the message. But don't give up that opportunity to walk through the gates of heaven. And even when we see people beside us stumbling or falling, let us not be the church that waves the finger and go, you shouldn't be here, you don't deserve it. But let us pick out our brothers and sisters. Let us pray for them as we're called to. Let us encourage them and build them up. We want you to be here on that last day. We want you to be with us. So stand firm, put on the armour and trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Father, I do thank you for this awesome reminder, just pointing us to endure, to stand firm, to be there on that last day with you. Lord, we long for that day and we pray that it would come soon. But Lord, as we sit here and now, Lord, we confess to you that I think all of us, if we're honest, we're going through lots of struggles where Satan is tempting us. 
where it's challenging us, where he's got us hooked on addictions, where he's got us selfish, selfish hearts, whether we're just listening to his lies. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on this armour that you've given us, your righteousness, your faith, the spirit and the word. Lord, that we can walk in confidence to know you're much mightier than Satan. You're never going to let us go. You are faithful to the end to us. But Lord, let us always look to you and long to be with you. We pray that you'd be working in our hearts, each one of us here today. But Lord, you'd also be working in our community. This message is just so important. This message of peace, unity with God. Lord, we just pray that you would take opportunities over Easter, like the carols, to, <clears throat> to just talk about Jesus. Invite people to carols to, to help people see that God, having a God is plausible. Now don't listen to Satan. But this God in the Bible is real and that he does love each of us. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to grow in that, that we would grow in our boldness, in our conversations, like Paul was praying. But Lord, we pray that you'd use us as a church to proclaim the message and proclaim the good news and see many, many more people have true life in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.